0: It's too short, man. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's too, we'll definitely too short.
1: Uh We're in Charleston, South Carolina. You ever been?
0: I have not.
1: Oh, Blair. I mean, we were uh, for like 10 years in a row, one of the top cities in the country. You got to come is here. Where better, are you? Is
0: it a better city than Greenville?
1: Greenville's nice. I can't say anything yeah. bad about Greenville because there's two people in the room right now that are from Greenville. <laughs> And if I say anything negative about Greenville, they'll probably cut the lines to the podcast, Blair, so I can't say anything. <laughs> but, uh, where where I mean, where are you?
0: I'm in British Columbia, Canada. I'm in a remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere, a short eleven hour drive from Vancouver.
1: Oh man. I got a buddy, uh, Cameron Harold. Do you know Cameron? Oh yeah. Yeah, he's no, out that way. <laughs> Who's Cameron? <laughs> Uh, awesome they're gonna just make sure our sound and everything else is right and you know yeah. to be respectful of time we'll start promptly um you know um following you for a while listening uh listening to podcasts you and david baker on uh, the two bobs podcast you know uh, got your book and uh, one of them i call a bible there's two bibles there's chris doe's book and then there's yours yeah yeah um so uh a couple of things like i referred to you as the professor of pricing <laughs>
0: I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna put that out there, the professor of pricing. Right. Um, so, guys, y'all tell me when, and uh, we'll count down, Blair, and then we'll get right into it. Uh, I'll I'll start off and just kind of say a couple things, and I want I don't want to botch your bio, uh, and then I'll give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. Is that fair? Sure. All right. So we're gonna go live in three, two. All right, everyone, I want to welcome you to the AdCast. Uh, I'm fanning out a little bit today because I'm on the line with uh, none other than who I call uh, the professor of pricing. And he's given me the okay to say that, uh, Mr. Blair Enns. Um, So I'm super excited to talk to you today. Um, I'm hoping that we can provide a lot of insight, not only for listeners, but also some business owners out there as well, and that they can learn from some of the things that you've done. Uh, so, uh, Blair, for those folks who've been living under a rock and don't know exactly who you are, man, would you be so kind to tell them who
0: you are? Yeah. I love the way you set that up, Eric. Thanks. Because (laughs) anybody who doesn't know who I am uh, has been living under a rock. Just kidding. That's right. (laughs) One of my kids said to me one day, are are you famous? And I said, I'm famous to a very small number of people. (laughs) (laughs) So you don't have to have been living under a rock. Um. Yeah. So I'm the founder of Win Without Pitching, which is a sales training organization that works with creative professionals. And I've been doing that since around 2000. 2000 sorry, April 2002 to be specific. Mm-hmm. So coming up on 20 years, Eric. Wow,
1: 20 years.
0: Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Now that I say it out loud, I'm feeling old, but uh, (laughs) Win Without Pitching was originally a solo consulting practice. And then Mm -hmm. in 2013, I changed the business model, decided to pursue some scale and create a training company. So it is today a training company. My title is founder, which means I'm basically a podcaster and writer of books now. We have a managing director who runs this training business, and then uh, we also have a a uh, growing, rapidly growing book business where we publish my books and we're trying to increase the global reach in multiple languages. Um, mm-hmm. and both of those businesses are run by different people. And I'm, uh, I, I, sit at the top of the org chart with, uh, no responsibilities, but for somebody with no responsibilities, I sure have way too much to do.
1: No, oh, man, come on. <laughs> you know, there's a, uh, one thing, uh, I'll, i refer to one of your books, the wind without pitching, um, uh, not uh, the pricing creativity let 's go to that one uh, that it 's more than just a book it 's almost like a reference book that you can continue to pull off the shelf over and over again and and to be honest with you i 've used it in that way before. I would go back and say, "Well, what did Blair say here? What did he say here uh, in this situation to kind of you know get me through something or coach me through something uh, so that you know we tried to adopt that same thing you know uh, have you ever heard that from people where they refer to the book over and over
0: again it's not a one-time read yeah and um, so I don't don't know how you're supposed to write books I've written two of them and I I always start with the physical format what do I want this book to look and feel like now the win with a pitching manifesto my first book which came out in 2010 Mm -hmm. um, that's an inspirational book and I had a very specific idea of how I with the size of it and how I wanted it to feel in my hands. I actually took a book that was the, the thickness that my target thickness, but it wasn't the right size. So I cut it down with an exacto knife and I gave it to the designer and I said, I want the book to be this size. And I reverse engineered the page count from there. But the, 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 uh, pricing creativity is more of a, it's not an inspirational book like the manifesto was meant to be. It's more right. of a huge how to book the physical format it's available in three formats but the physical format is uh it's in a three-ring binder and it's uh you you can't you can't lose it it's meant to be something that's referenced on an ongoing basis i've walked into um ad agencies and design firms and seen um multiple copies of that binder on people's desks and it kind of fills my heart when I see it, because that's what I, uh, I imagine this thing that you can't, it can't get lost in a stack or a bookshelf somewhere. It's meant to be a reference guide.
1: One of the lines, you know, I'll jump around a little bit, but one of the lines I remember from Wind without pitching manifesto, uh, and I, and I remember like I was doing a walk and I was listening to the book and I heard this one line and I had to go back again. I was like, well, what did he say right here? And it was, it said, uh, we have a duty and a responsibility to our company to earn a profit, for our employees and for our families. I was like, man, that is really deep. So I I could not, I would love to know what was going through your
0: head when you wrote that line. So when I wrote that book, I imagined one designer, a target audience of one. And you know, there are times when in my mind, he or she, they were self-employed and there are times when they were running a small firm. But when I, when I think of the creative person who starts a creative business, uh, they do so because they feel like they were put on this earth to create, right? So they build a business around their strength and then there are certain responsibilities that come with owning a business. One of them is the requirement to sell. So you have to be brave, stand up in your most vulnerable moment and try to make an appeal of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that situation, I know creatives are often uncomfortable talking about money. And there's a sense of, there can be a sense of, you know, I do it for the art. The money is just something that I need to live. I think that's a little lie we kind of tell, tell ourselves. And there's a sense right. that if I, and I, I addressed this more in my most recent book, Price and Creativity, the sense that, oh, if I charge a lot of money, if I have a dollar, that means that somebody else is without a dollar this this view that money is zero sum that you only make money by taking it from other people and that's not how money works that's not how value works that's Mm. not how trade works in a trade situation i trade money or services for money um and both of us are better off and we actually create more value create more money in the world um so in that line i was just trying to without going as deep into the idea as i do in pricing creativity in that line in the manifesto eric i was i was really trying to offer some tough love and and say effectively listen this is a wow. profit is a test that you have to pass and i've written other articles on this one one is called are you really needed where even tougher love, where I say, basically, if you can't earn a profit above and beyond like what you pay for, pay yourself what you do, if you can't earn a profit, that's a sign that the world doesn't really value what you do. And I know that's harsh, but I really want people to think about that profit. There's there's all kinds of reasons you need to earn a profit, but you need to validate that what you do is valuable and you are creating value in the world. Otherwise, you're just selling your time
1: Wow. I mean, that's a great way to put it. Blair, at what point did it just make you say that you wanted to really focus into being able to charge what you're worth and, and having the insight to say, I want to start writing these books. What brought about the change? Cause you said you're going on 20 years now. What brought about that change to say, I want to master this, or like I call
0: you the professor in pricing. How,
1: how did that happen for you?
0: Um, so I, I, I was a consultant for many years and, uh, during which I thought I knew what value was and I thought I knew how to price. And then I had a few things happen to me at about the same time that caused me to rethink everything I know about value and price. One Mm -hmm. was, and I write about this story in the introduction in pricing creativity. Mm -hmm. We were, um, I was onboarding the owner of an ad agency into our, th- the training program that we ran at the time. And I had known this guy, his name was known to me. He'd subscribed to a webcast subscription that I offered for years. I think he had come to at least one conference. So we knew of each other. Okay. And as I'm, I'm on the phone with him, onboarding him into this program for like $3,000 or some amount. I forget the amount of money. He said to me, um, um, hey, Blair, I've made a lot of money from your advice over the years. And I went, oh, oh, that's nice. And he said, no, no, I've made a lot of money. And I said, oh, great, I'm, I'm happy for you. And he said, Blair, I've personally made millions of dollars from implementing your advice. He really wanted me to know the financial impact that had on his business. And I, had, I was struck by multiple feelings at the same time. Wow one feeling was well yeah my re- initial reaction was wow oh my god i'm i'm thrilled to have been participated in your success uh, mm-hmm. number two i was thinking yeah you're probably overstating my involvement i give lots of people advice some take it some don't some <laughs> apply it to huge right. success some to little success but the biggest feeling that i felt in the moment was the feeling that that's not fair. <laughs> like, like you
1: were cheated, I, almost, or
0: yeah, it's like that's not fair that you made millions of dollars because you've only paid me like a few thousand dollars over the years. And I was really struck. I felt the feeling. I said all the polite, kind things. I'm really happy for you. That's great, <clears throat> etc. But that feeling just stuck with me, and I realized, you know wow. what? I don't understand value. <laughs> I don't understand. I need to. I need to price in a way that helps me capture more of this value. I thought I ordered three books on pricing. I thought I'll read some books on pricing. I'll learn everything there is to know about pricing. And the Mm -hmm. first book was a throwaway. There's, I won't mention it. There's one good idea in it that I no longer use. The second book was Ron Baker's book, uh, pricing on purpose. And in the, at the end of the first chapter, he had me hooked. He, I realized this is a, This is a vast field. It's as vast and as deep as the entire field of human judgment and decision making. And I probably won't live long enough to learn everything I need to learn about pricing, but I tried I've since read the canon of literature. I dozens of books, um, but that was a big impetus. And also, I also want to give a shout out to Tim Williams, because who's a, when you say the professor of pricing, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. I imagine Ron Baker and Tim Williams looking over my shoulder like these are the people that I've learned from. I was still a consultant, and I was doing a consulting engagement with a UX firm in Toronto, and I always um, asked for copies of their proposals, and I'm used to seeing multi-page proposals. Right. And this firm showed me their proposals were all one page three columns three different prices and this is a ux from they showed me a proposal and option 1 was 250,000 option 2 was 400,000 option 3 was 650,000 something like that and i said this is it this is your entire proposal and they said yeah i said does the client ask you like where you got these big round numbers from no which option did they choose? Uh, they chose the middle one, but they wanted a couple things from the expensive one, so we agreed at like four seventy-five or something. Big round numbers. They just <clears throat> and I said, "Where did you learn to do this?" Wow. And they said, "Tim Williams." And Tim Williams is a, a protege of Ron Baker. Ron has written a lot on pricing, and Tim has applied that pricing to the advertising world. So that happened about the same time, a little bit before I was onboarding this. Mm-hmm. Client into our training program, we said, I've made millions of dollars from your advice. So those two things happened. simultaneously, I realized, okay, I, there are, you're cheating yourself. I don't know about pricing. So I endeavor right. to learn.
1: Well, you know, you also brought up inside pricing creativity. And then if you think about like the three column approach, and like you said, don't go any more than four columns, but a lot of SaaS companies, they use that same thing and they all intend for you to choose the one that's right in the middle or they'll put most recommended, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, do you feel like uh, people are kind of selling themselves out of a job or or getting a client if they're overdoing a proposal?
0: Oh, Yeah. So we, uh, uh, so we now teach a variation of that, as you say, so three or four options, keep it to one page. And, you know, as you might imagine, we collect when we get a great quote from a client, we collect it. I just read one the other day who presented a one page, three option, one page proposal to a client of theirs. And the client who I think was the CEO of a company said. This is the best effing proposal I have ever seen in my life. Usually, when somebody sends me a proposal, it's 19 pages of BS. Yep. This is beautiful, and that's um, it's a fairly common—not not as effusive, <laughs> but that's a fairly common response. Clients love.
1: I'm used to it. <laughs> I, I'm used to
0: seeing you are that. You're using it. Now. Yeah.
1: Well, not now. I mean, before. Uh, I got into like win without pitching, and I remember one time I tagged you in LinkedIn, and I told someone they were asking about a book, and I and I tagged them, I tagged you, and I said I said this is uh this book changed, helped change the way that we think in our shop, and I tagged them about your book. But uh, when I came up in the media world, it was twenty pages, and then on the last page, you know, uh, ask for the money, and you know, like when you sit down with a client, they go through all these pages because they don't want to go through it they get just to the last one and see how much money you're going to ask them. And we give them one option and say, this is it. And they it knew it. Really was yes. And,
0: yeah. 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 Flip, 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 flip. Oh, we don't have that kind of money. Exactly.
1: Next. Exactly. <laughs> I, I want to read something that Chris Doe said about you. Uh, you know, I, I think I told you that I actually had Chris on this podcast too. What a, what yeah. a great guy. Yeah, uh, yeah. He said to you, he said, you had me hello. a low, the, the con the table you had me at the table of contents pricing creativity is a no-nonsense bulletproof mind-opening follow-up to the game-changing book win without pitching manifesto um, and i see that chris definitely with the future he's online and he talks about you a lot and some of the things that you've instilled in him uh and i want to go through some of those rules inside the book uh and win without i mean uh, in pricing creativity if that's okay with you sure thing um so the the five rules, and I want to be able to kind of, uh, if you can explain some of these rules to the audience, like rule one was price the client, not
0: the job. What do you mean by that? Yeah, and I got that from Ron Baker in one of his books. Price the client. It's um, so you can price the, um, you can price the client. You can price the deliverable outputs like the the like the market value in air quotes of the Mm -hmm. deliverable the app the ad campaign the website that you're designing whatever or you can price your inputs of time and materials those are really your only three options and when i say price the client it's really set price based on the value of what it is that you do to the client and recognize that value is like beauty. It doesn't exist extrinsically in the world. There's no such thing as like value in the world. There's only the things that you value, Eric, and the things that Mm -hmm. I value and the things that other people value. And we all value, you know, often the same things quite differently. And we might even value them differently at different times. So price the client really means leveraging this idea of willingness to pay, which is the fact that, you know, if you do, let's say, so I, I ask um, graphic designers, okay, you guys design logos. What do you charge for a logo? What's the price of a logo? And um, if it's an audience where everybody's in the same marketplace, there will be some like polite jockeying, one upmanship. Somebody, they'll be quiet for right. a while and somebody will say $10,000. And then immediately somebody will say $15,000. And I'll say, do I hear twenty? And then finally somebody will say, well, no, they'll say the real answer the price of a logo. That depends. And I say, you're right. What does it depend on? Does it depend on the amount of time it took you? Does it depend on the quality of your work? Hmm. What does it depend on? And the real answer is it should depend on what the value of that logo is to that client. And in the book, I talk about the, um, I give two examples of in 1971, Nike paid $35 for their logo. That's right. And in 2008, PepsiCo paid a million dollars to redesign the Pepsi logo. So one one price is, if we take $35 in today's dollars, that's $200. So one price is is 5,000 times the other price. And it almost certainly didn't take the designers any longer. The designer of the Pepsi logo, 5,000 times longer. It's not 5,000 times better.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: what's going on here? What's going on is the a logo to Pepsi, a multi-billion dollar corporation, is is worth more than a logo to Nike in the early days. And certainly right, they're the willing early days of make- Nike. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, I, I mean, how, let's just say like, how would you recommend that, you know, that designer that you're talking about, how do you recommend that they show the
0: value or teach the value of what they do? It's more about uncovering the value. It's more about being a good questioner about asking all right well so what do we want to accomplish here what what are the measurables what are the things that we'll measure to prove that you've accomplished your vision your goals Mm -hmm. what's the value of hitting these metrics and then the next step is what if i could help you do this what would you be willing to pay and those are i've just outlined the four steps in a value conversation if you want a price Mm -hmm. based on value in a in an ad agency or creative firm, you have to learn to master the value conversation. You have to learn to uncover the value that might be created. And it, it sometimes gets difficult with uh, logos because you ask the question, well, what's the value of a logo to Pepsi? Well, at the same time, PepsiCo was redesigning the Pepsi brand, they were also redesigning the Tropicana Pure orange juice brand. And when they redesigned that packaging, and the new packaging hit the shelves, sales plummeted immediately. It took them about 60 days wow. to restore the old packaging to the shelves, but in 60 days, they lost $37 million. And if the Pepsi brand had suffered the same fate after its redesign, it would have cost, depending on how you calculate it, it would have cost hundreds of millions of dollars. So just a bad redesign would cost It'd them cost hundreds a lot. Of millions of dollars. The idea that you would, no matter what you charge for the logo, the idea that you would price the logo based on the amount of time it takes you to design it in that context is absurd, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You know, years ago, I, I'll be honest, uh, and there's probably a lot of other firms out there too. In the beginning, that's how we looked at it—just time. That's oh, how I take did. You- that's how oh, It was, I was five rans- hours. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, and I, and I think you kind of call that the, the labor arbitrage when you're kind of selling time for money, you know, and that's exactly how it was. Um, Another one, like the step two in the rules is uh offer options. And we kind of talked about that with the three tiers and the three columns. Um, uh, Explain offer the options, uh, if you will.
0: Yeah. So you've already alluded to this, this like back in the old days, your proposals were way too long and it was just one option. Take it or leave it. Right. Um, there's a lot going on in this idea of options. So the first and most important thing to take away when it comes to the power of options is options allows you to provide context for the decision. Um, if you don't, like human beings cannot subjectively perceive absolute value. So what do I mean by that? And I, in the book, I show a little diagram and I'll do this in training where I, I can get you to think black is white or at least dark gray is light gray. And I, through, through a little optical illusion, I can get you to think that something that's really dark and really light are actually the same color. And that's because in this optical illusion, I won't describe it, but I, I'm controlling the context. And so the lesson is, if you let me control the context, I can get you to think black is white. I can get you to think heavy mm. is light. I can get you to think bright is dim, wet is dry, hot is cold, expensive is inexpensive. So if you let me control the context <clears throat> um I can affect the way you see value or values now and, and and um so because all of these decisions that we make about values of any kind they're contextual uh, if we don't provide the context for decision-making and what I mean by that would be, well, here are three different ways we can do this at three different price points. Which of these makes the most sense to you? Mm-hmm. If we don't provide that, we force the client to go away and get the context. So when you, prov- when your proposal contains one option with one price, you're forcing the client to either physically or mentally leave and go get the context. So they think, okay, well, what have I paid you before? Or like, what will other firms wow. charge? We had a couple of other bids and, and um, the question their their brains aren't really wired to answer that question. Is this proposal worth this amount of money? They can do an ROI calculation, but they can't fully answer that question. The, the human brain's really wired to answer these like subjective contextual questions. Like which of these, <clears throat> which of these colors is darkest? Right. Which of these weights is heav- heaviest, like comparing things to each other. So if you don't provide the context, they'll go get it. And so change the question to the question the human brain is wired to answer, which is which mm-hmm. of these is the best value?
1: No, it's really good. Uh, that's a great way to think about it. Um, The third rule was anchor high. Yeah. Anchor high. (laughs) So now now does that mean like, you know, we should start out high with our our most expensive one first and get it out
0: the window. I mean, get it out the way first. Yeah. So creative people are really good at intuitively anchoring. And what I mean by that is I've worked in multiple firms where we're going to present creative to the client. And here's this really cool idea. And we think it's going to, it's, it's a little bit out there. It's going to terrify the client. So for context, we put forward an even crazier idea and next to the, so this is an example of options. And so next to the really crazy idea, the moderately idea, crazy idea, doesn't seem so crazy, does it? But every time I was in a firm where we would present these ones, we would present the moderate ideas first and then the crazy ideas later anchoring The anchoring effect coined by Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And Kahneman wrote the book, Thinking Fast and Slow. The anchoring effect is the idea that the first piece of information on a subject will skew your final decision on it. So you should start with the crazy idea first. And when it comes to price anchoring, it simply means that when you're presenting a three option proposal, you start with the most expensive option. Then that is providing the initial context for the decision-making because every price that you put forward after that is cheaper in comparison and is a bit of a relief. So, And there's all kinds of studies have been done on the anchoring effect. It's so powerful you can't really undo it even when you know it's being wow. done to you. And if you don't anchor high, the client will anchor low. And the, the price anchor, that first big price that comes out of your mouth, it's like the moon hanging in the sky that is pulling like the tide to it the tide of the average settled price so that price anchor you start high and that affects on average it affects the average settled price um it's a super powerful technique and it's really easy to do and we do it intuitively your client anchors low by throwing out low numbers right you anchor high by throwing out higher numbers before they throw out low numbers You know, what's interesting is that automotive dealerships,
1: uh, automotive manufacturers, they do the same thing when they show, uh, let's just say that new Lincoln, they're going to show you the top of the line model. So they're anchoring high there as well. They're showing you the top of the line model because they've already painted that vision for you. So when they come, whenever you come to the dealership, you want the one that you saw Matthew McConaughey driving, right? You don't want the base model uh you want the platinum model so i mean so if you think about it like they're anchoring right in front of us aren't they With doing things like that
0: so many retailers (laughs) do this some restaurants do it in the way the menu is laid out um but i think of the last time i bought a suit so i had this very specific idea of the suit i want i knew the color of the fabric i knew the like the weight of the fabric and i Mm -hmm. had a budget i walked into uh uh, a store that's way too expensive for me. Uh, it's funny. I used to be able to shop there a long time ago when I didn't make nearly as much money, but their <laughs> just is <laughs> crazy. I thought, well, well, we'll try it out. So I walk in and I said to the salesperson, hey, I'm looking for this cut of suit, this color, this type of fabric at this price. Can I get that in this store? He said, yeah, I think so. Come with me. And then he did exactly what I knew he was going to do. He said to me, First, let's try this on for size, for fit. Mm. And he tries on this beautiful, puts this beautiful jacket on me. And I look in the mirror and I think, damn. This is it. (laughs) And then he leaves me alone for a minute. They always do this so that I can look at the price. And I look at the price and I choke on it. And when he comes, it's multiples of my budget. But he's already said, no, we're just trying it on for size. And he comes back and I said, I know what you're doing. I've written a whole book about this. And he laughs. Oh, he was working
1: you. He was working you. He was trying he to.
0: He said, okay, come on, let's go find something closer to your budget. And then he puts on another suit and it's like, okay, yeah, damn, still looking good. And I look at it and it's only two and a half times my budget. I'm thinking, okay, yeah, this is, this is better. <laughs> I'm at two and a half times my budget. <laughs> and so I'm looking at the suit in the mirror and I'm already thinking, oh, it's way cheaper than that first one. That's now the reference point. It's not my budget. The reference point is the anchor, the price of the one that he put on me. Mm-hmm. So I've already moved from my budget. And this one's expensive, but it's only two and a half times my budget. So I'm, I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm wearing running shoes. And he said, uh, do you want me to go get some dress shoes that'll go with that suit? And I said, yeah, sure. So I tell him my uh, size, and he comes back with these beautiful shoes. I put them on, and I go, damn. I <laughs> said, so how much are the shoes? He said, they're $1,100. I said, are these the most expensive shoes in my size that go with this suit? And he smiled and he said, yes. And I said, yeah, good work. I said, I'm not taking the shoes, but I'll take the suit. <laughs> so oh, man. Sure it's retailers do it all day long. Car dealers do it. So many people do this. Wow. And the next one you says you say is, uh, uh, say the price before you show the price. Yeah. Yeah. And so this doesn't come from the world of pricing. This comes from the world of selling. Basically, you can't over, it's really hard to overcome an objection that you don't hear voiced. So let's not, let's quit hiding behind paper. And instead of showing the client a price on paper, we need to be talking price early. So I have our clients talk price in the value conversation, actually set, I, I modeled for you the four steps in the value conversation Mm -hmm um, desired future state metrics, uh, value, and then pricing guidance. And that fourth step is something that I've added because I I really believe that we we need to be talking price early and often. And you know, we need to get in rough terms, even orders of magnitude. We need to be talking price in the value conversation. Then we come back with a proposal. And a really big price, if we've handled the value conversation properly, they've already heard it. They've already heard it in the value conversation. They're going to hear it again in the closing conversation when I share the proposal, but I'll always make sure the words come out of my mouth before I show them visually. Because if there's a reaction, I want to know about it, right? I want to see it. I want to say the words and, and uh, see the reaction in their eyes or hear it in their voice.
1: It's almost like if you go to purchase a home, uh, they want to see the pre-approval letter. To see what you're approved for. They want to talk that price before they take you around to these houses that you're not qualified to buy or you don't want to buy it. You don't want to see the number, right? Yeah. It's a qualifying step.
0: I think we we also, we, we just have a tendency to, we as human beings and when we're in sales roles to hide behind paper a little bit and just, well, let's, let's write the price on a piece of paper and slide it across the table or send it in an email. I agree. Um, And we need to be having these conversations. We need to own, you know, so I'm trying to help creatives charge more for what they do. And it's not, but a big part of that equation is I want them to step up and be more focused on value creation rather than selling deliverables or selling time, arbitraging time. So moving to value-based pricing where you do price the client, where you do charge more, it's not, it usually isn't just charging more for the same thing. It's, it's you getting paid to create value, and you understanding this, and the client understanding this. In in fact, your three option proposal might option the cheap option might be well. Here we'll sell you some time. Well, am I going to get the deliverable in that amount of time? I don't know. You take the risk, or if you if you want some price certainty, put it. we'll sell you the deliverable: the app, the website, the campaign, etc. Or if you'd rather, we work with you and do basically whatever's required to get the outcomes that you're looking for. You can pay us based on value creation and that number will be a whole lot bigger. And so you could put those three options in front of a client and say, Hey, there's three different ways we can work together at three different price points. It really depends on what you want to buy. You want to buy time and hope that it comes when we work fast and it comes in cheap or you take all the risks. Great. If you want to incentivize us, if you want to pay us to create value, then you're going to pay us a lot more, but there's a higher degree of certainty that you'll get the outcome that you're looking for, or you can pay us for the deliverable itself, which is usually a function of time with some extra margin built in.
1: Now, I mean, you kind of alluded to step five there, mastering the conversation, but have you ever found that some shops or creatives that they're afraid to go with the value uh, the value pricing model?
0: Yes first thing I'll say is not in a creative firm, not every client or every engagement is ripe for value-based pricing. Mm -hmm. I think you need to pick your spots, look for those opportunities where you have a chance for extraordinary value creation. And it's a more entrepreneurial client who's willing to pay you for value creation. Like some of the Mm -hmm. largest companies in the world where you have to go through procurement departments, they're not interested in value creation. The people buying your services, they just like checking a thing off a list. I need to hire an agency to do X, especially if procurement's involved. They're interested in minimizing the downside. So, you know, look, pick your spots to value price. And then, you know, when you do propose to get paid based on value, understand that it's a different relationship. The client needs to be clear about what they're buying. Um. And you need to be comfortable with it. And it takes, uh, I feel like I'm in the deprogramming business, Eric, on multiple fronts. <laughs> you it must takes, have learned what
1: you've learned, right?
0: Yeah, it takes some letting go of some old baggage and some old ideas. I mean, this is a workshop week at Win Without Pitching. So I'm uh, I'm training multiple people every day all week. And I just went through an experience like that today with Um, some members of this current group it's like they're just having a hard time getting their head around not not arriving at a price that comes from cost because they've spent years doing it and so in the value conversation we're trying to flip it we're trying to set price based on the value to be created without thinking about or talking without thinking deeply or talking about solutions um But somebody who's done this a long time, they jump ahead to solutions all the time. Client starts talking and they think, oh, yeah, I've seen this before. I know what your problem is. I know what the solution is. I know what we need to charge. And That's not how we should think about it. We should think about it. We should explore the value to be created without talking about solutions. And then once we have the value to be created, then we should set price as best we can. Well, if we could help you create this million dollars a year in profit, would you pay us half a million dollars? No, I don't think we would do that. 400,000, 300,000, maybe 300,000, but I'm really hoping to spend 50,000. Okay, so we've got a range of 300,000 to 50,000. I'll go away and think about how we can do this and I'll come back with a proposal with a few different options in that range. Right, It forces you, when you do this properly, you have to think differently about it. And that's why it's so easy to write about value-based mm-hmm. pricing. It's so easy to talk about it, but it's hard to implement because you have to let go of some old baggage.
1: Man, you have to really be bought in, though. Because uh, you know I, I was in the mindset a long time ago, just keep getting more people, get more people, get more people. And what you're doing is you're inflating your company when you do that. And you're not you're not turning a profit. You're making yourself bigger. Um, you you had a line where you called it uh, uh, the inefficiency principle. Yeah, you know, um, and, and just kind of trying to grow margin dollars is what you were
0: saying. Yeah, in the inefficiency principle, where I'm combining these two words of innovation and efficiency, and the idea behind the inefficiency principle is that innovation and efficiency are mutually mutually opposable objectives. You can't increase one without decreasing the other. And that'll cause some people's heads to explode. But what larger firms get caught in these efficiency-seeking traps. They become mm. these efficiency-seeking organizations. And you, you lose, as you gain scale and you put all of these tools and middle layers of management that are geared to efficiency seeking, you lose the ability to innovate for your client. So um, value-based pricing is really an innovator's mindset where client starts talking about the problem instead of you like reaching behind you and grabbing a product in your mind anyway, grabbing a product off the shelf and matching an existing product to that client and trying to sell them that product. You just think openly and creatively and you think, okay, this is a unique client with a unique opportunity to create value. So I am going to think about an entirely bespoke solution and I'm going to price it based on the value to be created here. So in this approach, in the more innovative value-based approach, Every client is a blank slate of opportunity. Every proposal, therefore, is this bespoke creation. Every price is a bespoke creation. In an efficiency-seeking organization, it's like, no, sell them a website. You know what? We need to charge. Wow. So
1: they're two ends of the spectrum. been definitely guilty of that. Um, um, So have I. you, You just think like a lot of firms, like, do they just, I know we talked about unlearning people or unprogramming them or reprogramming them. But do they just lack the confidence to say, I want to go forward with this. Uh, I want to be bought into how I price my company or my creativity. Do they lack the confidence in it?
0: Yeah, I don't hear from the people who lack the confidence, right? So there's a selection bias. They've read the book. They've reached out for training. I only hear from people who are eager to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if they find it difficult, they're eager to try. So I don't know the answer to your question. I suspect some just don't understand the ideas and some struggle with the implementation. Um, I don't know. You know, it's been, I've been converted to this point of view for a few (laughs) years now. It's hard for me to remember. Uh, (laughs) I remember some of the horror stories, but it's hard for me to remember the mindset.
1: Yeah. I I know um, when I first started, uh, when I first discovered you and Christo and started listening to the teachings and, Reading the books and doing as much research as I could. Um, for me, it started back in 2015. 2016 was when I started hearing about it. I think it was probably from uh, HubSpot. At the time, it was probably a content piece that I started reading into it. And then when I finally discovered you and Christo, um, and and I feel like I had you know put my foot in the water, so to speak. I uh, I had an agency friend, and I said to them, I said, "Hey, man, you you really need to read this book." because you know he was complaining about you know um, uh, pricing and, and and just how things were and and he said I think you guys probably make better margins than we do on some things and and I said to him I said it's because we try and adopt this and so that's where I think where some people they they're in the mindset I've always done it this way uh, like you said okay I'm gonna always charge. 200 bucks to do the logo using that as an example and they're going to stick with it. And then who knows? I mean, they may get like, you know, uh, 30 revisions, but they've already put a $200 price tag on it, you know? So uh, that's where I can say, like, I've seen it from, from my area where uh, there's other firms that I've spoken to where they really have to unlearn what they've learned. and, And I see some folks are
0: afraid to adopt that way of thinking, you know? Yeah, it's funny, you know, we're talking about creative businesses and the creative professions, and there's a lot of lack of creativity in how a lot of these businesses are run, which is, uh, it's always surprised way back, like 25 years ago, it surprised me how uh, conventional these firms are in how they're run largely. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of uh, deviation from the norm. So it's it's a rich playground like for me to play in. Yeah. A I love creative people. I like I, my clients are the most fascinating, interesting people in the world. I'm I'm glad I don't serve bankers. I, some of my best <laughs> friends are bankers. Don't get me wrong, but it's like I, it's just great to be surrounded by creative people. But yeah, um, and then you get into their businesses and and you think, well, hey, where's the creativity? Where's the innovation here? There's a lot of like sheep-like behavior.
1: I I can agree. And and I've seen it. Um, There was something that you you had said a while ago. Uh, You said your pricing is a prison cell of your own making. I thought that was really deep, man. That was really deep, man. Uh, Tell me where
0: you went. Where were you uh, when you came up with this? I mean, what was in your head? I don't remember where it was, but I remember a story from pre-pandemic. I was having a drink, so this would have been like 2019. Mm-hmm. I was having a drink with some old clients, some 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 of my first clients from 2003, um, and they were so we were reminiscing about the old days. We were all kids back then, and they were telling a story about the advice I gave them in 2003, and they were laughing mm-hmm. at how crazy good advice was. So the advice was this. They were, um, I forget how they positioned the firm, but they did a lot of corporate identity. They had, did a lot of branding mm-hmm. work. They were charging $15,000 for branding. And the, the advice I gave them, the advice young Blair gave them was, um, you guys aren't charging enough. Next time you quote this type of work, I want you to double the price and then just keep doubling it and find out where the ceiling is. So they went from, 15 to 30 to 60 to 120 to 240,000 for the same service. Nothing changed other than the price and they went from 15 to 240,000. dollars So in 2019, 16 years later. Wow. They're telling the story <laughs> and laughing about it and I'm thinking, "Oh, that's bad advice." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's not horrible advice. Uh it worked. but that so to me, your, your pricing is a prison cell in your mind and it's of your own making. You have this very limited idea of what you think the market will bear for whatever service you offer. Mm-hmm. And um, what happens is when you start to become a more effective pricer, you start to dabble with the value of pricing, you think you've escaped from the prison cell, but you haven't. You're just pushing the walls of the cell out further and further. And the advice that I had given to this client back in 2003 was essentially, hey, keep expanding the size of the room that you're locked in, keep doubling the size. So it feels like you're free, right? But you're not. You're still bumping up against, well, we can't get more than $240,000. And it's not wow. until you look at the value that you could have to create and then you start to price based on that, then you'll find that, well, it would be ridiculous to charge some people two hundred and forty thousand dollars because the the value isn't there, but other organizations say PepsiCo, maybe you could charge ten million like i I maintain that Peter Arnell, who did the Pepsi I don't know him, he's since retired, but he did the Pepsi Rebrand. I think if he'd read my book, maybe he could have charged twenty million instead of one million for the Pepsi rebrand just 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 now he would have had to put some of that compensation at risk, yeah almost certainly some of the pay to performance, Um, but the value of that work is just so big that certainly there's a way to price it in a way where you capture more of the value. And if you want to capture a whole lot more value, you do have to start thinking about putting compensation at risk, which is one of the highest levels of pricing. Almost like working on contingency almost. That is the very highest. So you think of value-based pricing where um, you're getting paid for the value that you create. And then there's performance pay where you're putting some of your compensation at risk and getting paid a base plus incentives for hitting performance. And then Mm -hmm. the highest version of performance pay is when you put all of the compensation at risk and you don't get paid anything until or unless the KPIs are hit, the goals are hit. That's uh, and I'm not I'm not suggesting that firms should do that. I'm also suggesting that you shouldn't not do it. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that is the highest that is where you will make the most money, but it's also the riskiest. Right, the lowest risk pricing model you have is just simply arbitrage time. You sell time, you push all the risk to the client. Well, am I am I going to get the logo done in that time? Who knows? That's the risk That's you right. take. That's the right? risk
1: you take. One of the last things I'll say, and then I'll, I'll begin wrapping this up, man. You know, uh, been very insightful speaking to you today. You said that value-based pricing is true partnership.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you've probably seen some of my rants about agencies agencies using the word partner. We partner with our clients. And I think that right. is such, yes, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to swear on this <laughs> It's such a it. BS. <laughs> no, do it, Blair.
1: Say it. Say it's it.
0: bullshit you partner with. <laughs> you. What you are is you're a vendor to your clients and you aspire to be a partner. What you are really partnership is really just the likable vendor. Um, There are, so I'll generalize here. There are two positions you can occupy in your relationships with your clients. You can be seen as a vendor with little power in the buy-sell relationship, or you can be seen as the expert practitioner. And partner is like this murky middle. It's the thing you slide through over the length of your relationship. When you began in the expert practitioner position, you slide through partnership on your way to vendor status. right? So what does partnership mean? True partnership means, in a business context, means that your financial fortunes are aligned. So true partnership means you make money, Eric, and I make money. Therefore, a true partnership is when you price based on value, and you put compensation at risk. If you don't have skin in the game, if you do not, if you're not putting some of your compensation at risk, if you are not forfeiting some of your fees, and then taking um, incentives on the back end for hitting whatever the goals might be, if you're not doing that, you're not a you are not partnering with your clients and. Don't feel bad about it, dear listener, because most of your clients you wouldn't want to partner with.
1: Oh, yeah. You you really, I think when you really truly partner with them, you can
0: possibly see the ugly side of what they could be. You got it. So you, before you partner with somebody, you have to, you have to agree that, oh, we could really add some value here. I can see the value that we can help to create here. And I trust this, not just this person, but these mm-hmm. people. I trust this person. I had somebody from a really large ad agency ask me about doing a value price engagement with them on pricing at one of the global agencies. And I said, you know what? I trust you. I maybe trust your new boss, but I don't know the global CEO. And there are, in the holding company, there are probably 20 people who have the ability wow. to come in and look at this and say, no. We're not going to share that information. No, change this so they don't earn their incentives, etc. Um, so you have to, you have to trust your client partner. Now, if there's a procurement department, my advice to you is don't trust them. Right? <laughs> you probably don't uh, need. to hear yeah. that from me.
1: No, no, it's true. It's funny. It's funny you say that because it's. Uh, I, I've never been a fan of RFPs. Uh, because like you said, they're just looking for someone to do the best work possible at the cheapest price as possible. And, and 10 times out of 10 is not us. So I don't, I, I'd rather not even respond.
0: Yeah. Often that's the case. And sometimes you can just derail an RFP, um, because the client's doing it because they don't know how else to go about hiring a firm like yours. And you can view that as an opportunity to step, to step up and change the way that you're going to decide whether or not you're going to work together.
1: That's fair. That's fair. Blair I, I really enjoyed this man I hope we can stay in touch um, and I, I'm going to make sure we in the in the final edits of this that we put some nice applause here for you in the end uh, for having you on the show man so I would definitely want to thank my you my
0: applause bigger than Chris's okay
1: oh did you hear his <laughs> no I didn't so, I should listen to it <laughs> Um, I want you to do, uh, go ahead and tell our listeners exactly how to find you. Um, uh, give, them, give them your contact info. I want them to be able to get in touch with you. I think that would be very helpful.
0: Yeah, you'll never find me. I'm in a remote village in a mountainous part of Canada, but you can find the electronic, the digital version of me online at winwithoutpitching.com. I'm Blair Anns on most social media. And also uh, Blair is actually part of
1: a podcast as well.
0: Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, I do a podcast. It's called Two Bobs, the number two B-O-B-S, Conversations on the Art of Creative Entrepreneurship, that I do with my good friend and co-host, David C. Baker.
1: Yeah, I, I enjoy the the banter between you two. It's, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty hilarious, man. And and at the end of the day,
0: sometimes I forget I'm listening about a business conversation. So, you know, I have uh, the same reaction. I listen to my own podcast and I laugh and laugh. To me, it's a comedy show. And then my family will say, oh, you're listening to yourself again, are you?
1: Yeah. Are you guys recording together? Are you both remote when you do it? We're remote. Yeah. Oh, we've well, all, you do we've very recorded well.
0: a small number together. Yeah.
1: Well, you guys do very, very well. And I enjoy the podcast too. So, uh, I'll make sure that I put some notes about how to find your books. Um, and I'll, I'll tell anyone who's out there listening to these, these books are game changers for us. Um, uh, they've helped us. I mean, since I discovered you, Christo, I've adopted a lot of those teachings in our own shop and it's been great for us, but Blair, uh, thank you so much. And thank you for giving us your most valuable asset, which is your time. Thank you, Eric. you. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. Thanks. Thank you so much. This is the AdCast, and we're done. We cut it off, right. Blair. That was awesome, man. Thank you so much, man.
0: Uh, I I did really enjoy it. Thank you. That was a ton of fun. <laughs> Thanks for persisting. Like I, uh, uh, I was just like, it's really hard for me to say no to everything I have to say no to, so I can focus on writing my next book. Um, yeah, you got through. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the next I one know you got
1: through eric
0: but you got through
1: oh uh, i don't know what it was it, it was uh the law of magnetism which yeah, always what you tracked, it. man you know yeah that's what it is uh yeah. what's the next book's going to be about what's that going to be about i can't tell you damn it damn it blair
0: <laughs> it's gonna have exclusive
1: jinx. here um yeah i i think a lot of people are interested in the why you know the why, the why. they should do it they were interested in the why because they hear, like even me, like when I first heard about, uh, you know, pricing creativity, not not just pricing creativity, but value-based pricing, the first thing I did was go online and see, hey, can I find a value pricing template? Can I do this? Can I do that? And truthfully, a lot of people just don't know. They want to know the why. Why do I need to do it? What can it do for me? And what I see now are, uh, you know, years ago, 10, 15 years ago when I started this, it was uh, people would have... Uh, it was the huge agencies that got all the big business. Now it's, it's shops of, you know, less than 20 people that can do great, great work that these people are finding out now. You know what I mean?
0: It's a better world that way, isn't it? Like they, all these it's small much specialist firms, they can, they can chip off big pieces of lucrative pieces of business. Yeah. yeah. And the big generalists are really struggling. It's, it's really like I grew up in the ad agency world and uh, it's really uh My world now is not big ad agency and every once in a while I'll have a conversation with somebody in that space or who serves that space. And I just, I realized that has not changed. Their problems are getting more difficult. Wow! Most of the firms that I said to one of my team members the other day, okay, we need to cut together a video of, we got 20 people in a training class. Let's get two or three training classes, like 60 people. And they're like, Mm 10 seconds that everybody does to introduce their firm. We specialize in like machine learning for uh, employee retention. I'm just making that up. That's not a real thing, but like a lot of machine learning, artificial intelligence, a lot of like really cool tech stuff. And it's like, wow, these are not, they're so far from ad agencies. Mm. It's crazy. They're so highly specialized. It's just, and if you just if you just rapid fire put all these cuts of these claims together, you'd just be blown away by the how different these businesses are from each other.
1: It is something though I mean I I see a lot of shops you know we started what 10 years ago? Uh, we just had a birthday 11 years old okay, but when we congrats. started uh, thank you man. I think we made it this far. we're good <laughs> yeah um, and that's a lot you know when, when I started I remember there was one agency here in our city. You're talking 70, 80 people um, at the time, which was considered a good size agency. That's a that's a hell of a payroll. And within I would say the, within the last what three years from now, uh, they were less than 13 people. So wow. uh, what does that tell you? Uh, you know, they were very, very traditional. They were very traditional in everything they did, how they bought media, their approach, uh, no process. It was more of, uh, you know, old school. It was very old school. This is what we do. Here's our rate card, you know, that kind of thing. And, and they've since had to change them. But, uh, and, I, and I ask you that question really if you run across people that just don't have the confidence because I think some people are just afraid. That's, it's, it's very, it's different for someone who's learned how to make a dollar a certain way. And then you tell them, Hey, I want you to learn how to make $5 this way. They, they are distrusting, you know, but first yeah. and foremost, they don't trust themselves. And that's why I said, I think the why
0: is very important for people too. I'm looking through the manifesto here. Uh, there's a section in here, like I wrote it 11 years ago or 12 years ago called the one who eddied out where uh, basically, and I remember the guy, he was an early client of mine thinking about him who um, by eddying out, he basically, he suffered the from success early on and for a long period of time when you could be a generalist. And then the market started to fragment and change and internet search comes along and now you can find a specialist. You don't have to put up with a generalist. And the market's evolving. Yep. And I remember watching him like success was like passing him by and he didn't, he didn't understand why. And it was like, he would blame the market or something else. And it was just like, and so in the, in the book, I talk about him like bobbing in the eddy in the, on the side, like as everybody goes past him, like wondering what happened. And it's early success from the old model. I saw a lot of, I have seen a lot of generalist firms that were, like regional success stories 70 people etc in all the major markets 20 years of we are the hot local shop and then the recession comes along they're out the first ones who get whacked because the business has been diminishing 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 things are changing and they're not changing with them so it's this like press pulse pressure ongoing pressure from not changing as things change and then a pulse like a an, a recession or a pandemic who gets Boom. whacked it's these generalists that were they were household names in in our local markets for years and it was like and they didn't change and they were the the ogs and then bang yep. they're
1: gone Re- relied on uh what we called uh the agency of record agreement you know yeah you remember that uh yeah. and, and the, you know, like the agency yeah, the agency of record means nothing now, because yeah. you'll have uh, a large client. They'll have three or four agencies, and yeah. you better. And if you want to survive, you better play nice in the sandbox. You know yeah, what I
0: mean. Vendors, um, all you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's competitive. Yeah, time man. I, well,
1: I can't wait until the new book comes out. Um, this episode will be out within two weeks. Uh, I'll give you first look. Um, we actually no got your head. Just air it. <laughs> <laughs> like um, it's, good, it's live. I, nice. We're going to do the clip where you say, "Hey, can I say bullshit?" And then we're going to air that clip over and over and oh, over. Oh, that's again. great! Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> that's the editor in you, right? It's like, oh, I'm going to use that.
1: <laughs> no, uh, but um, you know, we'll, we'll also make uh, some graphics out of your headshots as well, too, and promote this. But uh we thank you for your time, and uh, let's stay in touch.
0: My pleasure. Yeah, for sure. Eric, take care. Awesome.
1: Bye-bye. Take care. Remember there. That was a great episode. Oh yeah. <laughs> Here.